Well, as they're making their way back, I hope that you've made your way to Nehemiah chapter 7. If not, you can follow along on the screen above me, or if you have an app or um, brought a Bible along, you can use that as well. Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 5 through 73. And yes, it is as long as it sounds this morning. Um, it's a rather lengthy passage of Scripture, and it may be one why, as I'm reading it, you're thinking, why didn't we just skip over this and move on to chapter 8? But I think this morning, hopefully, as we go through the, the, the next bit of our time together, you'll see why this is important, the value that it has, especially when it comes to celebrating God's faithfulness this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 5 through 73. Hear the word of the Lord. Then my God put into my mind to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who were first to come back, and I found the following written in it. These are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those families whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Belshari, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, Bana. The number of the Israelite people, the descendants of Perosh, 2,172. Of Sheftiah, 372. Of Era, 652. Of Pathoth, Moab, namely the descendants of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. Of Elam, 1,254. Of Zatu, 845. Of Zakai, 760. Of Binuai, 648. Of Bebai, 628. Of Asgad, 2,322. Of Adonoikim, 667. Of Bigvi, 2,067. Of Adin, 655. Of Adder, namely of Hezekiah, 98. Of Hashem, 328. Of Bezai, 324. Of Hareph, 112. Of Gibeon, 95 the people of Bethlehem, and Nedophath, 188, of Anathoth, 128, of Beth Ahamazeth, 42, of Kiriath-Jerim, Sephathera, and Baroth, 743, of Ramah and Geba, 621, of Michmas, 122, of Bethel and Ai, 123, of the other Nabo, 52, the descendants of the other Elam, 1,254. 1, of Haram, 320. Of Jericho, 345. Of Lod, Hadid, and Anno, 721. Of Sana, 3,930. The priests, the descendants of Jedadiah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. Of Emir, 1,052. Of Pasher, 1,247. Of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the descendants of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, of the descendants of Hedeva, 74. The singers, the descendants of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the descendants of Shalom, of Adder, of Talman, of Akub, of Hatita, of Shobiah, 138. The temple servants, the descendants of Ziha, of Hasphah, of, of Taboth, of Keros, of Siah, of Paddan, of Labana, of Haggadah, of Somalia, of Hanan, of Gidel, of Gahar, of Rea, of Rezin, 
of Nekoda, of Gazim, of Uzzah, of Paseah, of Basiah, of Menuhim, of Nefushim, of Bakabah, of Hakapha, of Haroth, of Bezalith, of Melida, of Harish, of Bakos, of Sisera, of Tama, of Nazia, of Hatifa. Let's take a breath. The descendants of Solomon's servants, of Sorai, of Seraphith, of Perida, of Jael, of Darkon, of Gidel, of Shephitha, of Hetel, of Pekoroth Hazabim, of Amon. All the temple servants, all the descendants of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Talmada, of Talharsh, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. But they could not prove their ancestral houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel the descendants of Delilah, of Tobiah, of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the descendants of Hobiah, of Hakaz, of Barzillai, who had married one of the daughters of Barzillai, the Giladite, and also was called by their name. These sought their registration among the enthroned in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest from with Urim or Thummim should come. The whole assembly together was 42,360, beside their male and female slaves, of whom there were 7,367. And they had 245 singers, male and female. They had 763 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Now some of the heads of the ancestral houses contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, and 530 priestly robes. And some of the heads of the ancestral houses gave into the building fund 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priestly robes. So the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel settled in the towns. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we do come before you again today. And Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might see your truth more clearly, that you would unclog our ears, that we might hear your voice speak more plainly. And Lord, you, we pray that you would give us lives that we could go forth and live out the truth of your word to the honor and glory of your name. So now, Lord, I ask over these next few moments that you would speak through me, or I ask that you'd speak in spite of me, but I pray that regardless, your word would go forth and that we, your people, would be changed because of it. It's in Christ's name and to his honor and glory we ask all these things. And together, all God's people said, amen. Well, we live in a world of 23andMe and Ancestry.com and a number of other DNA testing sources. And the wonderful thing is that it becomes relatively easy in our day and age to do some genealogical work, to find out the origins of where we've come from, tracing back our family's history and lineage, maybe to a particular place or to a particular ancestor who came before us. But it wasn't always so easy. I remember growing up before the days of Ancestry.com and 23andMe, and what we had was a large family Bible, and some of you may have one of those family Bibles in your house, and in it are recorded the dates of important deaths and births and marriages and all those sorts of things, and maybe there's some newspaper clippings in there as well. 
In fact, I remember when my grandparents moved not too long ago, well, I shouldn't say not too long ago, more than a decade ago, we were going through one of the family photo albums, and there were all kinds of newspaper clippings, obituaries of those who had gone before us, accomplishments of family members, and it was an opportunity to reminisce and think about our great aunts and our great uncles, our great grandparents. It was a wonderful time. For some, it was a trip back to the family homestead, an opportunity to take some rubbings of some old tombstones that may exist there, or maybe some, take some pictures of, of the property now versus what it was in some of those old photographs. But regardless of what it is, I think that as human beings, we have this innate desire within us to understand the past, to know where we've come from, to know our history and legacy, but also maybe to get a sense of where we might be headed. Now, as I said, in some ways, DNA has made the genealogical stuff a little bit easier. There are genealogical maps that you can access via Ancestry.com with a membership. There are these vast databases out there. And it's made the task a little bit easier. All we have to do is swab, mail it in, wait a few weeks, and then we get some answers back. Or maybe it's a quick Google search, or maybe even just reaching out to a long-distance cousin who we haven't talked to in a while, and all of a sudden, new pieces of the puzzle come together, and we get a fuller glimpse of our past, our history. But as I said, things weren't always so easy. For example, we have Nehemiah, this gentleman who had previously served as a cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he's now returned to his ancestral home. He's come with the task of rebuilding the walls, this clear sense of mission and purpose. And while he's been in Jerusalem, a lot's been accomplished. Since returning to his ancestral home, a lot of work has been undertaken and completed. Walls have been reconstructed. Gates have been rebuilt. Not everything was as it used to be. But there were signs that God was doing something incredible. The temple had been rebuilt. And this temple, which symbolized God's presence in the midst of His people, was a permanent reminder that they belonged to Him and He was their God. The walls and the gates... They too had great symbolism for God's people. They spoke of safety and security. Safety and security that had been lost, that had been gone had long since disappeared. And now, as those walls were restored, there was this sense that once again, we as God's people are safe and sound. He will protect us. We've returned from exile. God is doing a new thing. They had come far in terms of what God was going to do in the life of His people, but there was still a long way that they had to go. Yes, Yahweh had drawn near to his people. His presence was known and felt amongst those who inhabited Jerusalem. Jehovah Jireh had indeed provided for his people. To borrow Matt Redmond's phrase in the song, 10,000 Reasons, they had that and many more to celebrate. And then we arrive at Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah 7, verses 5 through 73. And for many in this day and age, for us as the modern reader, it's very easy to either skip over this section of Scripture or just skim through it on our way to chapter 8. Because there are names. So many names. Names and, and numbers of people who had returned. 
And even as we look over their professions and the various roles that these people performed, they seem so foreign to us. They seem foreign to us because we can't pronounce these names. They're not familiar to us. They're not names that we use anymore. Most of them at least. And some of what they did, some of the roles that they served in the community, they seem equally foreign to us. But I ask you to consider something with me this morning. Papyrus, which was what these, this genealogy was listed upon, papyrus wasn't cheap. It wasn't inexpensive. It wasn't something that you just ran out to the store and procured. And the author of the book of Nehemiah goes out of his way to painstakingly record these names. He goes out of his way to painstakingly record these numbers, the various roles that these individuals and families played in the life of the community. Why do that? Why devote so much time and so much energy to recording this? Why painstakingly preserve it? And why, in a book of the size of Nehemiah, devote an entire chapter to names? Well, this morning, I want us to explore the reasons why this matters and also the significance that it might have for us as modern-day followers of God. The first thing I'd like to suggest is that this genealogy provides historical, verifiable evidence that the Bible is accurate. According to verse number 5, as Nehemiah is assembling the nobles, as he's bringing the officials together, as he's preparing to write and record his own genealogical record, he's presented with this genealogical record of those who returned very early on in 538 BCE. And they had been exiled in Babylon, but they had been released by King Nebuchadnezzar to come home. And now they have the opportunity to rebuild the temple. And this is what Nehemiah 5 says, verse 5 of chapter 7 says, They came with Zerubbabel. They came with Zerubbabel, Nehemiah declares, and indeed that's what happened. We have historical records of that. There's archaeological evidence of that. But not only that, there's also internal evidence within Scripture. The prophet Haggai, who has this very short book that bears his name, he prophesies of Zerubbabel, and he says that Zerubbabel will be among those exiles who return from captivity to Judah. He will come to Jerusalem, and he will be God's signet ring, a sign of promise, a sign of hope for God's people. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. The book of Ezra recounts how Zerubbabel came back with those first exiles that he, along with Jeshua, who was serving in the priestly role, ended up providing leadership and guidance as the temple was reconstructed, as the foundations were laid. They provided influential leadership and Zerubbabel will end up becoming king. This prophecy that Haggai had came to fruition in Zerubbabel. There's historical evidence. And Nehemiah says he's in this genealogy of those who are among those who first returned. And now we have historical record, archaeological evidence that are saying the exact same thing. What Scripture says is accurate. And that's important. The second thing that I want to suggest this morning is that this genealogy reminds us that we matter to God. Each of us has been uniquely created and gifted by God, and we have been given those talents, those gifts, those abilities to bring honor and glory to Him, but also for the betterment of the community. In our case, the body of Christ. 
In Psalm chapter 139, verse 14, the psalmist with awe, with wonder, pronounces this. He says, I, de- I praise you, for I am fearfully wonderf- and wonderfully made. He's talking to God. He's praising to God. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. I know that full well, he says. As we read through this lengthy genealogy, as we list off all these different persons and names, some of the people's names may be familiar. The Zerubbabel's and the Jeshua's. They were the leaders of God's people. They distinguished themselves in that way. They were well known within the community. It makes sense that their names would be recorded. But then also the heads of the families, their names are recorded. And the number of descendants that they had that came with them, those too were recorded. Recorded down sometimes 67, 3,271. Each person was counted because their life mattered. It mattered to God. It mattered to the community. God had created these people fearfully and wonderfully. But then, of course, it doesn't stop there, does it? It's not just the heads of the families. It's not just the leaders who are listed. No, there's, there, there are the, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon, and, of course, a few others. The fact of the matter is, each and every one of these people mattered to God. They were fearfully and wonderfully made. They were created purposefully by God. Some to sing some to use their hands in skilled and wonderful labor, some to serve in the temple, some to be priests, some to be Levites. But regardless, God had created them uniquely, wonderfully, fearfully. In the same way, we are God's creation, and we are fearfully and wonderfully made as well. God has made each and every one of us with care with intention, with purpose. God has given to each of us gifts. Some of those gifts we share in common. I mean, this morning the band was playing and their gifts of music melded together in beautiful and wonderful fashion. Amen? But some of the gifts are unique and different. Some are creative with their hands. Some can do woodworking. Where others couldn't. Some have the ability to think sharply and, or, or to think creatively. Others have the gift of hospitality and can bring others together and make them feel comfortable and at home. The list goes on and on. But God has created us just as He created the Zerubbabels and the Jeshuas and the singers and the servants in the temple and the priests, and the Levites, and all those other names in the list. He's created us purposefully. He's created us in such a way that He's given us gifts, talents, abilities, so that we might offer them back up to Him, that He might be honored and glorified, and so that the Christian community can benefit. The third thing I'd like to suggest about this genealogy this morning is that it is a reminder that God is faithful. God had made promises to his people. 
Even though they were off in exile, he had made promises to them. He had told them that they would one day return, that he would once again dwell in the midst of his people, that they would be reminded that he would be their God and they would forever be his people. And it was easy sometimes in exile to lose sight of those promises. It was easy to forget that God had made those promises. It was easy to think that maybe he had forgotten them or given up on them. Yet God remained faithful. It would take some time. Some decades would have to pass. But these displaced exiles would once again return home. The safety and security that they longed for would be reestablished as the gates were reconstructed, as the walls were rebuilt. The hope that had been lost in captivity would be reignited. God was and is faithful. Great is his faithfulness. Amen? God's past faithfulness to his people, which is what is recorded in these genealogies, fuels praise in the presence by Nehemiah and the community that's there at this present time. And it ignites future hope in them. It's a great reminder that just as God was faithful in the past, just as he's there with them in the present, he's going to continue to walk with them into the future that he has and is preparing for them. Nehemiah 7 is an opportunity for that community to remember that. But today is also an opportunity for us to remember that. To celebrate the ways that God has been moving in the past, the ways that God is moving now, the ways that he's provided even when we weren't aware of it, the ways that he's kept us safe, maybe in ways that we didn't notice in the moment, but we can see in hindsight. The way that he's taking care of our needs and provided for those things that we need each and every day as we pray, as we say the Lord's Prayer. God's past faithfulness, it should cause us to praise him right here, right now in the present, and it should hopefully cause us to be hopeful towards the future. To know that we serve a God who doesn't give up on us. So my prayer is that like Nehemiah and like the community that is gathered there in that place, that today we would sing of God's past faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, O God. That we would celebrate God's faithfulness and what he's doing here in the present. And that we would look forward with hopeful anticipation to what God has in store in the future. Amen and amen.